You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Saving money on exterior wall lights. Now at Menards. Find your style with Patriot Lighting. Exterior lights enhance the look of your home. Choose from over 50 options from Patriot Lighting. Now through May 19th, get $10 instant savings on a single qualifying purchase of $100 or more on in-stock outdoor wall lights. Check out our entire selection of outdoor lights and see the rest of our deals happening now on Menards.com. Save big money at Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 83, The Chase. Thanks for joining me. Before we get started, I'll remind you once again that you can listen to this and all future episodes ad-free by pledging at least $2 a month on Patreon.com. I recently crunched the numbers, and only about one out of every 50 listeners contributes to Patreon. If you're one of them, thank you. If you're not, please think about chipping in. Patreon, not ad revenue, is what makes this show viable. So, if you believe in what I'm trying to do, please help me keep it going. I try to keep these types of announcements to a minimum. I don't particularly enjoy talking about this stuff, and I don't think it's what you guys tune in to listen to. So, you'd be doing everyone a favor if you logged on to patreon.com slash ageofnapoleon and signed up. If enough people do it, I will never have to make an announcement like this again, and we will all be better off. Anyway, we left off last time on October 20th, 1805. The War of the Third Coalition began in dramatic fashion. Napoleon pushed into Germany with lightning speed, trapping an Austrian army at the fortified city of Ulm and forcing it to surrender. It was a stunning demonstration of the capabilities of the Grande Armée, and a stunning display of incompetence by the Austrian army's commander, the unfortunate General Mach. This was a rude awakening for the entire coalition, but especially for General Mikhail Kutuzov, who was leading a column of roughly 38,000 Russian soldiers towards Ulm, with the intention of joining forces with Mach. Kutuzov had received nothing but encouraging reports from the Austrian forces at Ulm. Then, suddenly, without any warning, Mach himself appeared at Russian headquarters to announce that he had surrendered and almost his entire army was in French custody. Bonaparte's next move was obvious. He would try to keep up his momentum and envelop and destroy Kutuzov's column just as he had Mach's army. The Russians moved slower than the French, and would have to awkwardly redeploy to march back the way they came. So, there was a real chance Napoleon would be successful. Kutuzov and his officers immediately went to work organizing a retreat. Meanwhile, to the west, Napoleon was consolidating his position, and preparing to go after the Russians. 
In an official bulletin to his troops, he said, quote, This Russian army, that the gold of England has transported from the ends of the earth, shall experience the same fate as those we have just defeated. End quote. On October 24th, Napoleon entered Munich, the capital of Bavaria, which had recently been retaken by French troops, after a brief Austrian occupation. He was greeted by massive cheering crowds. To most Bavarians, Napoleon was seen as a liberator. They knew that for centuries, the Austrians had dreamed of adding Bavaria to their empire. Now, by siding with Bonaparte, their country finally had the upper hand over their old enemies. The city of Munich shut down for three days while the people celebrated their deliverance from the Habsburgs. The campaign was going very well. However, every step forward weakened the Grande Armée. Bonaparte would enter the coming phase of the campaign with fewer troops at his disposal. This problem would become more acute as the campaign continued. Whenever the army advanced, they had to leave behind troops to garrison cities and towns in their rear, and guard their depots and supply routes. Napoleon also had to peel off several divisions to strike south, into the Austrian province of Tyrol, to secure his right flank. Furthermore, he had to leave an entire corps of the army at Ulm, just to manage all the Austrian prisoners. Bonaparte would also be up against a much more capable opponent. Kutuzov was nothing like Mach. In fact, he had been one of the loudest critics of Mach's strategy, and all his worst predictions had come true. After the death of the famous General Alexander Suvorov, Kutuzov was widely considered the best general in the Russian army. In the days after the disaster at Ulm, various Austrian units who had slipped out of Napoleon's trap were able to rally around Kutuzov's column, bringing his total number of troops to somewhere around 50,000. Still, the coalition forces were badly outnumbered and unprepared for a fight. If Napoleon caught them, there would be hell to pay. Kutuzov entrusted the rearguard to one of his most capable subordinates, Prince Pyotr Bagration, and prepared to run. This was somewhat complicated by another unexpected arrival at Russian headquarters, the Holy Roman Emperor Francis II of Austria. He was, as you might expect, deeply concerned about the course of the war, and wanted to exert some personal oversight despite his near-total lack of military experience. The emperor gave Kutuzov two objectives. First, to preserve his forces, and second, to engage Napoleon in delaying actions, to buy time for the Austrians to rally a new army so they could mount a defense of Vienna. Under the circumstances, these objectives were mutually exclusive. Any engagement with Napoleon, even a limited delaying action, would mean risking huge losses. Kutuzov could already see that, barring some kind of miracle, Vienna was already lost, even if the emperor was not yet prepared to accept that reality. Kutuzov was a cautious general, who believed in avoiding battles until they could be fought on his terms. Despite the emperor's instructions, the coming phase of the war in Germany would see the coalition forces struggling with all their might to avoid a battle. However, they were not always successful. Marshal Murat and his cavalry corps were right on their heels, supported by infantry from Marshal Lannes' corps. 
What followed was a series of desperate and somewhat confusing skirmishes and small-scale battles, as the troops of Bagration's rear guard fought to buy time for their retreating comrades, and Murat and Lan sought to bowl them over and get into the rear of Kutuzov's army, hopefully forcing them into a battle. On October 31st, the French defeated a combined Austro-Russian force at the town of Lombok. They inflicted around 500 casualties on the coalition and suffered only minimal losses. But they were not really in a position to capitalize on their victory. The Russians and Austrians slipped away. The two armies clashed again five days later at the Battle of Amstetten. Once again, the French were victorious, taking around a thousand casualties while inflicting around 2,000 on the coalition, and driving Bagration from the field. However, the coalition forces were able to retreat in good order, and continue providing cover for the rear of their army. On November 8th, three days later, the French caught up to an Austrian force at the town of Mariazel. Once again, the French were victorious, but once again, they didn't have the momentum to push into the rear of the retreating coalition forces. That same day, Austrian diplomats arrived at Napoleon's headquarters to see what terms he might accept for a ceasefire. By now, French troops were only around 100 kilometers, or 75 miles, from Vienna. We've seen in the past how the Austrians had a terrible fear of losing their capital. In both of the last two wars, a threat to Vienna had been enough to bring peace. But Napoleon had little interest in stopping now. He told the Austrians that he would not even begin negotiations unless the province of Tyrol and all of Austrian-controlled Italy was immediately ceded to France. And those were just the preliminary demands. He still reserved the right to impose even more conditions on a ceasefire once negotiations started. He knew these demands were outrageous and would never be accepted. This was his way of saying no without actually saying no. Meanwhile, after more than two weeks of dodging the French, Kutuzov finally decided to fight. Clearly, the Grande Armée was determined to push as hard and fast as possible, to do anything to catch the coalition army. That desire for speed, above all else, could lead to recklessness, and Kutuzov hoped to capitalize on that. On November 11th, he left the road behind his army open, and positioned 24,000 Russian and Austrian troops in ambush. They would fall on the pursuing French at a place called Durenstein, where the French would have to pass through a narrow stretch of land between the Danube River and a high canyon, the perfect place for an ambush. An entire division of the Grande Armée under General Théodore Gazan marched right into the trap. The fighting was ferocious. The French were surprised and outnumbered, but struggled desperately to escape the trap. For a while, it looked like a disaster for the Grande Armée, that Gazan would be forced to surrender or see his division destroyed. But reinforcements arrived at the last minute. Fighting continued well into the night, but now on more equal terms. Both sides lost around 5,000 men, and both claimed victory, although most modern historians give the edge to the coalition. Still, Kutuzov's trap had failed to have much of an impact on the wider campaign. 
This game of retreat and pursuit continued as before, but the Grande Armée had gotten its first real bloody nose. The situation inside Vienna was growing dire. The Austrian government was still not prepared to admit the scale of the disaster at Ulm. The public had little to go on but rumors and the accounts of refugees fleeing the advancing French. In the absence of any official information, speculation ran rampant. There were efforts underway to evacuate the imperial government, but this was done in a panicked, haphazard manner, which only contributed to the growing atmosphere of anxiety and chaos. Some people stockpiled food, which led to massive price spikes. Others tried to flee the city, which choked the roads heading east. Violent press gangs of Austrian soldiers roamed the streets, abducting any young men they could find to serve in the militia. Emperor Francis had hoped to defend the city, but with the coalition forces still in disarray and the Grande Armée right on their heels, it was simply impossible. There would be no great battle or siege of Vienna in 1805. In both of the last two wars, the Austrians had sued for peace rather than contemplate the fall of their capital. Now, they were preparing to hand it over to the French without a fight. French cavalry under Marshal Murat and infantry under Marshal Lann entered the city on November 13th. Ironically, Napoleon was actually angry at this development. At this stage of the campaign, his main goal was the destruction of Kutuzov's army, not the conquest of Vienna. Which was a propaganda triumph, but had little military value. He had sent direct orders to Marshal Murat to this effect, but by this stage in the campaign, the French were moving so fast that the orders didn't reach Murat until he had already diverted his troops towards Vienna. Napoleon himself entered the city that evening and set himself up in the Schönbrunn Palace, the summer residence of the Habsburg emperors. I would love to know how Emperor Francis II reacted when he learned Bonaparte was sleeping in his bed. As I mentioned, Vienna wasn't of any huge strategic value, but it did have one significant asset several bridges over the River Danube, which the French would have to cross if they wanted to continue their pursuit of Kutuzov. As soon as they entered the city, Marshals Lawn and Murat rushed to secure these bridges. Despite the chaos of the Austrian evacuation, they had taken the proper precautions with these bridges. They were guarded by a strong force with lots of artillery, and rigged with explosives. The Austrians were prepared to hold these crossings as long as possible, then blow them up to deny them to the French. So, perhaps there would be a battle in Vienna after all. But, one of Napoleon's staff officers, General Henri Bertrand, had an idea. After arriving at the bridge with a small group of staff officers, Lon gave orders for a battalion of grenadiers to rush to the scene and Lon, Murat, and General Bertrand gathered up their aides and prepared to walk towards the bridge. They approached casually, unarmed, with their swords at their sides. As they came within sight of the Austrians, they began waving. Several men pulled out their handkerchiefs and raised them above their heads, the universal signal that they wanted to talk. 
When the party was challenged by the Habsburg lookouts on the Vienna side of the bridge, they explained that a treaty had been negotiated, and France and Austria were now allies. They claimed they urgently needed to speak to the Austrian commander, Count Auersperg. The sentries bought this story and accompanied the French officers as they crossed the bridge. The gunners on the opposite bank had orders to fire on the French as soon as they appeared, but this didn't look much like an attack, and now the French entourage was mingled together with the Austrian sentries. Any concentrated artillery fire would have killed both groups indiscriminately. And so, Lon, Murat, and Bertrand sauntered across this vital bridge, right in the face of the enemy. When the French grenadiers began to arrive behind them, a commotion rose up among the Austrian gunners, who began to suspect that something was going on. But Lon was able to calm them down. Quote, Why are these cannons pointed at us? Do you want to fight us? Come on, turn them around. We're friends. End quote. It seems unbelievable, but remember, only a few days earlier, Emperor Francis had sent diplomats to Napoleon to negotiate a ceasefire. This fact was widely known among both armies. The fact that those diplomats had rejected Napoleon's terms was not well known. And in the often bizarre world of early 19th century European great power diplomacy, the idea that Austria might switch sides and join Napoleon to fight the Russians, or possibly the Prussians, wasn't totally implausible. At the very least, this story was enough to confuse the situation. General Bertrand was taken to see Count Auersperg, while the rest of the party remained at the bridge. Auersperg demanded to see written proof that a treaty had been signed. Bertrand told him that he had none, and his word of honor would have to suffice. Apparently, this was enough to convince the Count. Meanwhile, back at the bridge, a suspicious Austrian sergeant actually lit the fuse to the explosives on the bridge. But Marshal Lahn noticed and ran over to snuff it out. He actually had the gall to reprimand the sergeant for attempting to destroy public property. On the Vienna side of the bridge, the French grenadiers were beginning to cross. Finally, an Austrian captain lost patience with this charade and shouted out, quote, Gunners, fire, fire, the French are coming. End quote. His men began to stir, preparing to fire, but Lon and one of Murat's staff officers grabbed the captain and stifled him. Confusion reigned, and without the encouragement of their officer, the Austrian troops hesitated. It seemed like this little scheme was about to fall apart, but at this key moment, Count Auersperg, the commander of the Austrian rearguard, arrived on the scene with General Bertrand, who had just managed to convince him of this ceasefire story. So, Auersperg ordered his men to stand down. Then, it was simply a matter of stalling as the French grenadiers advanced across the bridge. Auersperg protested, but did nothing to stop them. Once the grenadiers arrived on the far bank, they disarmed the gunners and removed the explosives. The bridge was taken without a shot fired. There would be no respite for the retreating coalition forces. Napoleon would cross that bridge and continue hounding them as they retreated northeast, towards Bohemia, the modern-day Czech Republic. 
It had been only three weeks since the fall of Ulm. The Grande Armée had traveled somewhere around 250 miles, or 400 kilometers, in that time, and all while maintaining their lines of communication all the way back to the Rhine, occupying Austrian cities and towns they conquered, and fighting running battles with the rearguard of Kutuzov's army. This entire phase of the campaign had been a mad chase, and with the capture of the bridge at Vienna, the race would continue. On November 16th, Marshal Murat's cavalry encountered a strong Russian rearguard, anchored on good defensive ground at a place called Schungrebern. Murat was under orders to attack at all costs, and under normal circumstances, he wasn't the type of general who needed to be told to act aggressively. He was faced with Prince Bagration's rearguard. The coalition had only around 7,000 men on the Schungrebern Heights and Murat had over 20,000 in the vicinity. The Grande Armée had a golden opportunity to overwhelm this small force and finally get into the rear guard of Kutuzov's army to do some real damage. But Murat had outrun his reconnaissance, and he didn't have a good handle on the situation. He thought Kutuzov had turned around and deployed for a major battle that these forces arrayed on the Schungerbern Heights were just the most visible component of the entire coalition army. Marshal Murat had the upper hand, but instead of attacking, he worried he'd just led his troops into a trap. He sent a messenger to Prince Bagration with a proposal for a temporary ceasefire. Bagration probably couldn't believe his luck and immediately agreed. He was outnumbered, and his only mission was to delay the French for as long as possible, so this was probably the best outcome from his perspective. When news of these developments reached Napoleon, he was furious. He immediately dashed off new orders to Murat, quote, I cannot find words to express my displeasure. You only command my vanguard, and have no right to agree to an armistice without my orders. You will cost me the fruits of a campaign. End the armistice at once and attack the enemy. March. Destroy the Russian army. The Austrians let themselves be duped over the passage of the Vienna Bridge, and now you have let yourself be duped. End quote. Murat was one of Napoleon's closest friends, but he had such an outlandish character that it seems even his closest friend enjoyed taking him down a peg. Mirat actually wrote Napoleon a letter complaining about the harsh tone of his orders. Quote, the letter distressed me. Your majesty shattered me, and I do not deserve such cruel treatment. End quote. Anyway, despite being shattered, upon receiving his orders, Murat immediately informed Bagration that the ceasefire would end at 5 p.m. that evening. But by now, nearly three days had passed, and the main body of the coalition army was out of danger. Still, the French attacked that evening, as Napoleon had instructed. Most of the battle took place at night. It was a confusing and terrifying engagement. In the darkness, there were several friendly fire incidents on both sides. It was back and forth for hours, but Murat's men finally succeeded in pushing the Russians off those heights. The French lost around 1,200 men, and the Russians lost more than twice that number, 
plus even more in pursuit. Of the 7,000 men of the rear guard, only 4,000 were able to rejoin Kutuzov's army. It has to be said, this probably would have been a devastating blow if it had been struck three days earlier. On paper, it was another defeat for the coalition, but Bagration had retreated in good order and had managed to buy Kutuzov three days, so in the grand scheme of things, this was not such a bad outcome for the Allies. But it had been a close call. Once again, the coalition had been forced to leave behind valuable supplies and equipment, all of which was now in the hands of the French. They were even forced to leave behind the sick and wounded in their hospitals. By now, Kutuzov's men had marched all the way from their bases in modern-day Belarus and Ukraine into western Austria, then back to the modern-day Austrian-Czech border, without any significant time for rest and recuperation. And this was winter in Central Europe. The whole way they had been lashed by rain and snow, and forced to endure freezing cold temperatures. But they had done it. On November 19th, exactly one month after the fall of Ulm, Kutuzov finally rendezvoused with his reinforcements from Russia. Between the survivors of his original column, Austrian units who had joined the retreat, and these fresh troops, he now had somewhere around 80,000 men at his disposal, although they were poorly supplied and many were in no condition to fight. The coalition army was not totally out of danger, But the most harrowing stage of the retreat was now over. Napoleon had entered Germany with nearly 200,000 men, but he had been forced to peel off tens of thousands for various garrison duties and secondary objectives. So, at least on paper, the two forces were now of roughly equivalent size. That meant Napoleon could no longer afford to throw caution to the wind and order his vanguard after the retreating Russians at all costs. He had inflicted terrible losses on Kutuzov and occupied the Austrian heartland, but had failed to achieve his primary objective of forcing the retreating army into a major battle and destroying it. The preceding month had been hard on the Grande Armée as well, but they were much better off than the Russians. For starters, it's much better to be the army capturing supplies than it is to be the army leaving supplies behind. The French were also much better at moving quickly and living off the land, and their supply and logistics system far outclassed every other European army. Still, Napoleon was also looking for an opportunity to rest and reorganize, to prepare his men for the next phase of the war. The Great Chase was over. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, It's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. We'll leave Napoleon and the Grande Armée there for the moment. 
There were a lot of things happening all at once in these last few momentous months of 1805, and we need to take a short look at the bigger picture. In northern Italy, Archduke Charles, brother of the Emperor and one of the best Habsburg commanders, was leading nearly a 100,000 men, based in the Austrian-controlled province of Veneto, roughly the eastern quarter of northern Italy. Charles was supported by a smaller army of around 20,000 men, led by his brother, Archduke John. These forces were opposed by Marshal André Massena, who had been Napoleon's right-hand man during the first Italian campaign, and was affectionately known within the army as the Dear Son of Victory. Massena's army of Italy had only around 50,000 men. If you'll recall, the Habsburgs had believed northern Italy would be the primary theater of the war. Massena's only mission was to hold this region for France, while Napoleon made the main effort in Germany. And so, naturally, the Austrian forces were much stronger. The War of the Third Coalition in Italy started on a bit of a strange note. Archduke Charles had a plan for an offensive into French-controlled territory, and he put it into action at the outbreak of hostilities. However, he soon learned that Napoleon was in Germany with the bulk of the French army, and this information seems to have thrown him for a loop. Historians are divided on Archduke Charles. Some see him as one of the best commanders of his generation, maybe not at the very top tier with Napoleon and Wellington, but not far off. Others see him as a brilliant organizer and military theorist who had some serious drawbacks as a field commander, someone who was very valuable in the war ministry and on the general staff, but less so on the battlefield. In particular, he was sometimes overly cautious and could be rigid in his thinking. Perhaps this is why he hesitated. Other sources claim he was right to be cautious that upon arriving in Italy, he discovered that his army was nowhere near ready to fight. In particular, it seems that some of his units were under strength. So, the two-to-one advantage he enjoyed over Messena was actually mostly illusory, men who existed only on paper. British war subsidies were based on how many troops each coalition power put into the field, and it has been suggested that the Habsburgs may have fudged the numbers a little bit in Italy to trick their allies into giving them a little extra money. In any case, once he learned that Napoleon was on the march in Germany, Charles halted his offensive and asked Messena for a temporary ceasefire, until both sides could learn how the confrontation between Napoleon and Mach would play out. Obviously, Messena agreed. He was outnumbered, and his only mission was to hold off the Austrians, so a ceasefire suited him just fine. Charles was the one holding all the cards. The forces opposing his offensive were actually much weaker than his plans had anticipated, but instead of taking advantage, he waited. The way things turned out, the Grand Habsburg Offensive into northern Italy was over before it really began. The news of General Mach's fiasco at Ulm changed everything. This is the point in the story where we began this episode, with Kutuzov's small army dangerously exposed, and no significant force standing between Napoleon and Vienna. Archduke Charles's duty was clear. 
to bring his army back to Austria as quickly as possible. At this stage, there was still some hope that if he moved fast enough, he might reach Vienna in time to mount a defense of the capital. So, what happened? As you can probably imagine, the first half of this episode would have played out very differently if there were around 100,000 Austrian troops imminently arriving from Italy on Napoleon's right flank. The story of how Archduke Charles and his men were prevented from playing any role in Napoleon's march on Vienna is one of the unsung chapters of the Napoleonic Wars. André Massena was known to complain that he didn't get enough credit for France's victories, and he may have had a point. In any case, after the fall of Ulm, Massena's mission changed too. He and his army had to prevent Archduke Charles from retreating to give Napoleon a free hand to occupy the Habsburg heartland and, hopefully, chase down Kutuzov. Archduke Charles knew he had no shot at retreating to Austria in time, as long as he and his men were harassed by Messena and the Army of Italy. Charles would have to deliver a decisive blow in Italy to buy time for his army to retreat. Charles knew Messena would attack. Even though the French were outnumbered, they would be compelled by their need to delay his retreat. And so, he planned to find favorable defensive ground and lure Messena into a dangerous frontal assault, which Charles hoped would damage the Army of Italy so badly that he would then be free to redeploy his army into Austria without any interference from Messena. The Archduke decided to make his stand near a place called Caldiero. He placed his army along a high ridge line and dared the French to attack. He knew Messena had to fight, and would have no choice but to send his outnumbered army up those heights, directly into the cannons and muskets of the Habsburg defensive line. The Battle of Caldiero is one of the most poorly understood engagements I've encountered doing this show. There is not much information about this battle, and a lot of it is contradictory. I can't say for certain how many men took part, or how many became casualties. There isn't even agreement on when exactly the battle took place, or how many days it lasted. So, I'll do my best to focus on areas where the various narratives agree. At some point in the waning days of October 1805, the two armies met outside Caldiero. Massena planned to throw the enemy off balance with a flanking maneuver, then push their center with a frontal attack. Threatened from two directions, the Austrians would hopefully be forced to retreat off those commanding heights. It was a sound strategy. You might recall that Napoleon had used similar plans on several occasions. But Archduke Charles surprised everyone by ordering a very uncharacteristic, aggressive attack right into the French center. The Austrians had the numbers, and Messena's forces were divided in preparation for the flanking maneuver. The Habsburg forces swept down from the ridge and achieved some success, but were eventually held and beaten back. Messena did not want the Austrians to re-establish themselves on those good positions on the ridge, so he ordered an aggressive pursuit right on the heels of the retreating Habsburg troops. It worked. The French chased the retreating Austrians all the way up the ridge and passed their starting positions, 
and were able to seize some good ground on the heights and the village of Caldiero. But Archduke Charles was far from beaten. He rallied his men for a counterattack of his own, and they were able to stop the French and push them back in some places. The battle continued this way for some time, a seesaw of attack and counterattack as the two armies struggled for control over the all-important heights and the defensible buildings of the village of Caldiero. As I said, there is some disagreement over how long this cycle continued, but all accounts agree the fighting was intense and casualties were heavy on both sides. The combat only stopped when it became too dark to continue and Archduke Charles decided to slip away under cover of darkness. Most sources agree this happened after the first day of battle, but others claim it was the second or even the third. Despite the intensity of the fighting, it was not decisive. Neither side had gained a clear advantage. Different sources give wildly different estimates of casualties, but it seems both sides suffered almost equally, with perhaps slightly more casualties on the Austrian side. As is often the case, the Austrians actually suffered more losses the day after Caldiero than in the battle itself, when a large part of the Archduke's rearguard was trapped and forced to surrender, netting around 5,000 prisoners. Historians are all over the map on the question of who won the Battle of Caldiero. Many consider it a draw, which is understandable because at the conclusion of the battle, both of the armies were still in good order and neither general had totally succeeded in fulfilling his objectives. Others claim Archduke Charles was victorious. Despite suffering worse casualties than the French, his troops held firm, and he retreated from the field under his own initiative, not because he was forced to by the French. He had failed to achieve his main objective of crippling Massena's army, but most of his troops were able to retreat into Austria eventually. Others claim Massena won the battle. The Austrian army was larger than the army of Italy and held good positions, but Massena had inflicted severe casualties on them, and at the end of the struggle, his troops held the field and the Habsburgs were in retreat. Furthermore, Archduke Charles had failed to secure the breathing space he needed for a quick retreat. After Caldiero, Massena was able to hound the retreating Austrians at every step, force them to deploy a rearguard and keep their forces concentrated. As a result of his failure to crush Massena's army, Charles's progress into Austria would be painfully slow. With Massena right on their heels, the Archduke and his men would not be able to play any part in the great chase underway in Austria, as Napoleon rampaged through the Habsburg heartland and attempted to force Kutuzov into a battle. In fact, Charles spent the month of November in much the same way Kutuzov did, always looking over his shoulder, organizing rearguard actions, and being forced to choose the safest route rather than the fastest route. The Habsburgs had hoped Charles might be in time to mount a defense of Vienna, but when the capital fell to Napoleon, the Archduke and his army were still hundreds of kilometers away, still mired in their slow retreat. You might argue that the Battle of Caldiero itself was a draw, or even an Austrian victory, but there's no question that the aftermath of the battle had very much worked out in France's favor. 
Messena may have failed to win a clear triumph on the battlefield, but, as always, he had done what Napoleon needed him to do. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. So, that brings us up to date with Italy. But we're still nowhere near done. These closing months of 1805 were momentous. There were a lot of things happening all at once. We haven't even mentioned the climactic sea battle which occurred on October 21st off the coast of Cape Trafalgar in Spain. But that will have to wait for another episode. For now, we have to move on to look at the wider geopolitical situation, in particular with regard to Prussia. The fate of the entire continent hung in the balance, and yet, one of the great powers was still sitting on the sidelines, refusing to play any role. But with each passing day, Prussia's neutrality looked increasingly untenable. Powerful forces were drawing the kingdom towards conflict. By October, the vaunted Prussian army was mobilizing. This was sold as a precautionary measure, which was understandable on a certain level. Prussia was right next door to the main theater of the war, and there were massive foreign armies marching back and forth right along her border. But everyone suspected this was a prelude to Prussia joining the war. However, who these soldiers would be fighting was still an open question. As I've mentioned in previous episodes, King Frederick William III of Prussia was somewhat weak-willed, and did not have a good head for diplomacy and statecraft. His advisors and courtiers were divided on foreign policy, and so the king had a hard time making up his mind. There was a strong anti-French faction at the Prussian court. They felt that all other geopolitical considerations had to be put aside until Napoleon was stopped. With the occupation of Hanover, French troops were right on Prussia's doorstep. French success in the opening phase of the war had proved that they had reached previously unknown heights of military power. The anti-French faction argued that if Napoleon got his way and crushed the coalition, Prussia would be at his mercy, and who could guess how far his ambition reached? Maybe Prussia would be his next conquest. And so, they argued, better to unite with the coalition now, when there was still some chance of success, than risk facing Bonaparte and his Grande Armée alone. One of the leaders of this faction was the king's wife, Queen Louise, who, unlike her husband, had a forceful personality and plenty of opinions about diplomacy and geopolitics. However, there was also a pro-French faction at the Prussian court. They argued that, yes, it seemed Napoleon might be on the verge of completely upending the European balance of power, but so what? Under the current status quo, Prussia was by far the weakest of the great powers. If Napoleon destroyed this restrictive status quo, and in the process defeated Prussia's greatest rivals, the Russians and the Austrians, 
How could that be a bad thing? Surely Prussia should be working to ensure that outcome, not uniting with its enemies to defend this unfavorable status quo. France had already signaled that they were willing to let the Prussians take Hanover. The pro-French faction claimed this showed Prussia would be in a good position if France won the war. The anti-French faction argued that Hanover was nothing but a cheap bribe to drag Prussia into Napoleon's war. And so, with his court divided and strong arguments on both sides, King Frederick William vacillated, while the pressure continued to build. In early October, French troops violated Prussian territory as they completed their flanking maneuver around Ulm. We've seen this happen before. It was not uncommon during this period. Typically, the country whose borders were violated lodged a diplomatic protest, and that was the end of it. But in this context of the debate between the pro-French and anti-French factions at Prussian court, this event took on a much greater significance. It was an insult to Prussian national pride, and it strengthened the arguments of the anti-French faction. Napoleon had now shown that he was willing to infringe on Prussia's national sovereignty. If he won this war and made himself the master of all Europe, who would stop him from doing it again if it suited his purposes? By now, these debates had spilled out of the court. Presumably, few of the peasants and laborers who made up the vast majority of the Prussian population cared very much. But among the literate classes, there was widespread outrage at this affront to the national dignity, and rumors of war reached a fever pitch. It seemed the tide was finally turning towards the anti-French faction. The Prussian court was also aware that their neutrality was beginning to have an impact on the perception of the kingdom abroad. For most of the 18th century, the Prussians had cultivated a reputation as a warrior state that would never hesitate to defend its interests with force of arms. Now it was whispered that the Prussians had gone soft, that King Frederick William III was a coward who would give any concession and swallow any indignity to avoid a fight. At the courts of the coalition powers, Queen Louise was referred to as the only man in Prussia for her tireless advocacy of war. All of this is a bit unfair. War should never be taken lightly, especially war on this scale. We just saw an army of over 70,000 destroyed in only a few weeks during the Ulm campaign. Napoleon and the coalition were playing for very high stakes, and, as the smallest great power, situated right next to the center of the action, Prussia had a lot to lose. But there was a kernel of truth in all this talk of cowardice. King Frederick William's indecisiveness was a problem. Prussia's diplomatic situation was getting worse by the day. Someone had to make a decision. Emperor Alexander of Russia had had enough. He was desperately trying to funnel supplies and reinforcements to his troops in Austria and Bohemia, and the most direct route ran straight through Prussian territory. The way the Russian emperor saw it, the situation was desperate, and it was time to take sides. King Frederick William's continued insistence on neutrality meant that, practically speaking, the Prussians had joined with Napoleon. 
Alexander ordered his troops to march to the Prussian border and demand passage through Prussian territory. If this request was refused, they had orders to continue anyway. Damn the consequences. In private, the Russian deputy foreign minister informed the court at Vienna, quote, His Majesty is firmly decided to start a war with Prussia. End quote. The rest of the coalition agreed. They felt that by this point, Prussian neutrality was effectively helping Napoleon, and so it was better to have the Prussians as open enemies. The Russians believed they could sweep into Prussia before its army finished mobilizing, seize control of the country with relatively little bloodshed, and then turn the vaunted Prussian soldiers against the French. It was an incredibly bold plan, perhaps a little fanciful, but if it worked, it would drastically shift the momentum of the war towards the coalition. Everyone was braced for a confrontation, but when those Russian troops arrived at the border, the Prussians surprised everyone by agreeing to let them pass peacefully into Bohemia. As it turned out, the coalition diplomats had underestimated the level of anger in Berlin at Napoleon's violation of the Prussian border. The Prussians were eager to get back at the French, and lending a hand to their enemies was a perfect way to do it. Emperor Alexander was forced to re-examine his assumptions. Perhaps there was still a chance to bring the Prussians into the coalition peacefully. He had already made up his mind to go to Bohemia himself to oversee his forces in the field, but he decided to make a pit stop in Prussia to make an appeal to the king face to face. Alexander arrived in Berlin with all the pomp and circumstance due to a visiting head of state, bands and parades and balls, a bit ironic given that only a few weeks earlier he had been planning to enter the city as a conqueror. Still, he was somewhat disappointed. He thought that with the growing anti-French mood at the Prussian court, and the recent decision to allow Russian troops through the country, King Frederick William was finally ready to join the war. But as it turned out, although Frederick William had decided on a pro-coalition foreign policy and was mobilizing his armies, he was still not ready to begin hostilities. Frederick William and Queen Louise took the Russian emperor to visit the tomb of Frederick the Great in Potsdam, and it was here, at this emotionally charged location, that Alexander made his final pitch to the Prussian king. We don't know exactly what was said at this meeting, but it's inherently very dramatic, and it's been fictionalized many times ever since. We can assume that Alexander invoked the memory of Frederick William's famous uncle, Frederick the Great, and begged him to stand up for the national honor and put Prussia's fate in the hands of her army once again, just as Frederick had done a generation earlier. According to some sources, the two monarchs placed their hands on the sarcophagus of the great king and swore an oath. King Frederick William III had finally committed his country to war. But not just yet. Frederick William wanted to make one last try for peace. And besides, the Prussian army was not yet ready for combat. Many units were still mobilizing, and many that were already in the field had been deployed along the Russian border, and would have to march all the way across the country to face the French. So, Alexander did fall short of his goal of producing a Prussian declaration of war, 
but he got the next best thing. The two monarchs signed the Potsdam Agreement, which committed the Prussians to send an ultimatum to Napoleon. The French would have one month to officially accept the pre-war borders and agree to Prussian mediation of the war. If they did not, Prussia would join the coalition and declare war on France. Prussia joining the war would be a massive complication for Napoleon, to put it mildly. His army was in Bohemia, and his supply lines stretched all the way back through Austria and southern Germany, almost in parallel with the Prussian border. All of those miles and miles of supply lines would be exposed to enemy attack once Prussia joined the coalition. So would the rear of the Grande Armée. The Prussian army numbered well over a 100,000 men, enough manpower to replace all of the staggering coalition losses of the first two months of the war. And, despite all the success of the revolutionary French armies, the Prussian military was still considered by many to be the best in the world. The ultimatum was officially delivered on November 15, 1805. No one expected Napoleon to accept it. The countdown was on. In one month, December 15th, the war would change drastically in favor of the coalition. That is, unless some intervening event changed the situation. So, that brings us up to date with the Italian theater and the broader geopolitical scene. By now, Bonaparte and the main body of the Grande Armée were in the southeastern part of the Kingdom of Bohemia, the province of Moravia, near the city of Brun. On November 26th, Napoleon went out with his staff to personally scout the terrain around Brun. He spoke little, but at the end of his ride, he turned to his aides and said, quote, Gentlemen, examine this ground well. You will have a part to play on it. End quote. A plan was forming. The details of that plan were still unknown to everyone but Napoleon. But the Grande Armée would stop here. Whatever Napoleon was going to do in the next phase of the campaign, it would happen in or around Brune. Meanwhile, at coalition headquarters, there were deep divisions over how to proceed. Most of the senior generals, including Kutuzov, agreed that retreat and delay was still their best option. Their forces were still reeling after over a month of hard marching, pursued by the Grande Armée, and in only a few weeks, the Prussians would join the war, and the whole strategic picture would be different, and probably a lot better. All they had to do was hold on a little longer. They were divided over where to retreat, but almost all of them agreed the time was not right for a battle. However, the generals were no longer the supreme authority at coalition headquarters. They had to contend with not one, but two emperors in their midst. Alexander and Francis II were both present, and both accompanied by large entourages of aides, advisors, friends, and other miscellaneous cronies and hangers-on. Emperor Alexander saw the situation very differently from his generals. He believed Napoleon's success in the preceding months was only due to the weakness of the Austrian army and incompetence of its leadership. The emperor believed the Grande Armée was severely depleted after its furious chase through Austria, perhaps even completely spent. Anyone who could look at a map could see the French were quite far from home. 
Alexander believed that after living in hostile country for two months, so far away from their depots, it was safe to assume that the supply situation in the French camp was growing desperate. Perhaps most of all, he believed it would greatly enhance Russia's reputation on the world stage if they were the ones to finally defeat Napoleon, that waiting on the Prussians to enter the war would only diminish the glory of victory, or maybe even spoil this golden opportunity to fight Napoleon when he was weak. Alexander had excellent generals like Kutuzov and Bagration who had just succeeded in holding off Napoleon and outfoxing the Grande Armée, you would think he would have listened to them. But Alexander wanted to attack. Some members of his entourage were downright militant that he had to defy these overly cautious generals and seize his chance for glory. This group managed to win over Emperor Francis to the idea, and once the two emperors were on the same page, there was no stopping them. And so, against the advice of its most competent and experienced leaders, the coalition army began preparing for a major battle. Napoleon was eager to play along. He did his best to present an image of weakness, hiding the size and condition of his army as best he could. He even opened negotiations with the coalition, careful to give the impression that he was anxious and eager to avoid a fight. Napoleon walked out to the outposts of the Grande Armée to personally meet with one of Alexander's close aides in the no-man's land between the two armies. They spoke for quite some time, but obviously these negotiations went nowhere. Neither man actually had any intention of reaching an agreement. Eventually, Bonaparte grew tired of this back and forth, and said, quote, Well then, we shall fight, end quote, and turned around and walked back to the French lines. For the next week, there were small-scale skirmishes as the two armies got into position for a major engagement. On November 29th, Austrian cavalry captured a small town just beyond the French lines. Today, it is known as Slavkov but in Napoleon's day it was generally known by its German name, Austerlitz. The whole countryside was alive with soldiers, as both armies concentrated all their forces for the battle everyone knew was coming. Napoleon was able to bring in two more divisions from Austria, just in the nick of time. The coalition believed they would be entering the coming battle with a clear numerical advantage, in fact, the two armies would be almost evenly matched. By December 1st, the two armies were quite close, and their preparations were complete. Napoleon released a declaration to the Grande Armée, quote, This victory will finish our campaign. Then, the peace that I will make will be worthy of my people, of you, and of me. End quote. He was calling his shot. Not only was Napoleon sure he would win the coming battle, he was sure it would be decisive, that he could win the war in a single stroke. And he would have to. It was now two weeks before the Prussian ultimatum expired, and King Frederick William finally joined the war. That night, Napoleon walked through the camps of the Grande Armée. As they saw him pass, the men lit torches and began to cheer. Someone realized what day it was, and shouted out, quote, It's the anniversary of the coronation! Long live the emperor! End quote. 
And he was right. It was after midnight, December 2nd. At that exact moment a year ago, the workers were busy inside Notre Dame preparing for the ceremony in the morning. The battle would be fought one year to the day after Bonaparte put the crown on his head. Hearing this cry, the troops became nearly ecstatic. The night before the battle that would decide his fate, on the anniversary of the most important day of his life, this great man had chosen to spend his time walking among the common soldiers. Soon, the whole French line was lit up with torches, and cries of Long Live the Emperor echoed for miles as tens of thousands of men raised their voices all at once. Apparently, Napoleon was quite moved and spent a long time wandering through the camps, receiving this adulation and raising the men's spirits for what was sure to be a hellish day tomorrow. Napoleon said to one of his aides, quote, this is the finest evening of my life, but I regret to think that I will lose a great many of those brave fellows. End quote. The coalition lookouts, only a short distance away, were understandably alarmed by this display and reported it up the chain of command. At coalition headquarters, they convinced themselves that all this noise was probably just the sound of retreat, that Napoleon would slip away in the night rather than face battle against a superior enemy. But, you have to wonder, seeing the glow of tens of thousands of torches, and hearing the Grande Armée shouting out their devotion to the Emperor, maybe at least a few people in the coalition camp wondered if they had made a terrible mistake. Their entire plan for the upcoming battle was predicated on the idea that the Grande Armée was weak and depleted. On the night of December 1st, it certainly didn't look weak or depleted. Only time would tell. In the morning, on the anniversary of the coronation, everything would be on the line. And we'll leave things there for now. Next episode, Austerlitz, one of the greatest battles in history. Until then, thanks for listening. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Hi. I'm Mike Troy, host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we have today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end. Please subscribe for free. We're available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast.